Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Good morning. My name is Andrew, and today we're going to be reading Acts 1, 8 through 11. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria, and to be and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken, uh, taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid, hid him from their sight. They were lurk, looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Thank you for reading that passage of scripture. It's one that we often forget about in the day-to-day that Jesus made a promise, and that promise is that he was going to return one day. And really, the whole Christian faith is oriented around the promises of God, the truth of God, and the return of Jesus. Uh, If you've been with us uh, these last weeks, or if this is your first time with us, um, we have been in the letter of 2 Peter. Earlier in the summer, we read through the letter of 1 Peter, which was distributed to churches throughout um, Asia and uh, 2,000 years ago. And then Peter wrote a follow-up letter. Uh, And so we've been walking through that as well. And so today we're going to finish out uh, the letter uh, to uh, these churches that Peter wrote to. And really, there's been some key themes here, uh, just three chapters long. Um, The first chapter, Peter's encouraging the church to continue on in their faith, but to actually live it out to what he says to add to their faith, the attributes of of a holy life, of a godly life. And then we spent the last two weeks looking at chapter two, which is the challenge to guard against the false teachings that would come into the church. And so this morning, uh, we're going to if I can get my clicker to work here. We're going to uh, finish out the, the letter of Second uh, Peter, chapter 3. Uh, Jude, if you could just put up that slide because my clicker's not working. So uh, chapter 3, there we go. Uh, and if you have a Bible this morning, uh, I would ask that you would turn to uh, the book of Second Peter, chapter 3. Uh, there would be page 1053. In the Pew Bibles, if you don't have a Pew Bible. And we're going to uh, do what we've been doing through this letter is I'm going to have you read it yourself. Um, That way you know where it is. That way you know I'm not making anything up as we unpack it together. And then we're going to walk through it together as a church, both considering the context it was written in and then ask the Lord to reveal it to to us as timeless truth. So go ahead and take a moment. Um, Jude, if you can go to the next slide. Uh, Chapter 3 of 2 Peter, Uh, we'll take uh, just a few minutes here, and you can read it on your own, and then we'll pray together.
Uh, some of you are faster readers than others. Whenever my wife and I are reading something together, she finishes way before me. If it's like a web page, I'm like, stop scrolling. I'm, I'm slow. Um, we'll go ahead and, and unpack this together in, in just a moment. But let's go ahead and pray together now. Father, we thank you for this time and this space that we have to gather together, to unplug a little bit from the worries of our day, from the distractions that surround us, to come together as your people, a diverse people, Lord God, from different nations, different languages, different political affiliations, but united by your grace. And that's the truth, Father. All of us are receivers of that grace, grace that we didn't earn, that we didn't even ask for, but that you've given to us. And so, Father, from this position of grace, of favor, of being in your family, we ask this morning that you would soften our hearts to receive your word, not Andrew's word, not Lavelle's word, but your word, Father. A timeless word that was spoken 2,000 years ago through your apostle Peter, and that is still true today. So would your Holy Spirit fill us up? Would it reveal your truth to us today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Life uh, is full of unexpected challenges and hardships. And many of us have been feeling that for uh, a year and a half or more through this pandemic, uh, through the racial strife in our country, through political turmoil. And then you add into the, the macro issues of our culture, the day-to-day things that are challenging for us. And sometimes we just feel Overwhelmed. Sometimes it's just that one last thing that just makes us snap and feel like giving up. I was reading just this week about uh, suicide statistics in our country, and I grew up in a town of about 25,000 people. And the average um, amount of suicides in any given year in the United States is 45,000. 45,000 people who have given up, who have lost something, who have run out of hope. Uh, Pastor Rick Warren says uh, this in one of his messages. He said, you know, you can go about three days without water before you die. You can go several weeks without food before you die. But you can't live another day without hope. And that's what we see reflected in so much of our culture today. What is that one last thing that makes us snap, that makes us want to give up? that causes us to give in. This morning, I was getting ready to get uh, into my car uh, to come to church, and there was a a light on in my dashboard, which I never like to see. None of us do. But I have an old vehicle, so I'm used to it. I'm used to ignoring it as well (laughs) and continuing to drive. But this one had to do with my tires. So I thought, well, I should probably just give it a look. And sure enough, my back left tire was completely flat sitting on the ground. And I'm wearing a white shirt and white tennis shoes. And I'm like, all right, things are about to get dirty. (laughs) Figure out how to swap this tire out. I hadn't swapped out a tire in a while. So I swap out the tire. All right, I'm going to still make it to church on time. And then I look at the tire. And as soon as I lower the jack and the tire goes down, it's completely flat. My spare tire. (laughs) So I thought, well, I hope this thing's not flat. And I pumped it up with air. And by God's grace, I got here. It wasn't the last thing for me that snapped my hope, but it was certainly an obstacle to my mourning. And this cry that we see throughout Scripture when people reach that tipping point is this, How long, O Lord? How long? We see this cry repeated through the Psalms. How long, O Lord, are we going to deal with this oppression and this injustice and this famine? And The list goes on. How long, O Lord? 
Psalms is full of it. In fact, so often we sing the happy songs, but almost two-thirds of the Psalms are laments about what is going on in the world. So there is room in our faith to say, how long, O Lord? And the prophets say the same thing. The prophets, through for the, the spokesmen of God to the people, they, they, they also speak to God for the people. How long, O Lord, are we going to endure these things? How long? How long, O Lord, is our cry because we recognize that God is our only hope? You don't say how long, O Lord, if you don't believe he has the power to control things, to shift things, to change things. So we as as Christians, we can with confidence cry that out. How long, O Lord, knowing that he hears us and that he's in control. One of the the most sobering illustrations of, uh, of running out of hope is if you were to go to a, a state-run orphanage in any one of a number of countries. I have a friend that went to one once in, in the East Asian country. He said he walked into the room full of children, full of babies in their, um, in their beds. And he said, the most eerie thing was I didn't hear a sound. And he said, the reality is, is that Babies from a very young age, they know that if they cry, their needs will be met, whether it's a diaper or food or comfort. But when those cries go unmet for a certain amount of time, babies will literally stop crying. What's the point? So as you walked into this room full of children, not a noise was to be heard because they knew that their cries would not be met. After we've been walking through this book Uh, this letter that was written to the church 2,000 years ago, but to us today. There's been this acknowledgement of the sin of the world, of the challenges that the church faces. There's been this acknowledgement of the false teaching that is worming its way into the church to try and disconnect it from God and from the hope that God brings. And so Peter wraps up his letter that you just read uh, with the purpose of this letter. And the purpose is that we would have an elevated perspective to remember the promises of God and to live in light of his return. Andrew just read that passage from Acts chapter 1. That's the promise we hold on to, that Jesus, the way that he left, he will return in the same way. And so Peter reminds us, he says, and dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as what? Reminders. We all need that. To stimulate you to wholesome thinking, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So why did he write? He wrote that so you and I would remember God's faithfulness and we would think rightly because right thinking leads to right living. One thing I have found to be true in my relationship is that distance often leads to doubt. Uh, when, when a soldier's on deployment for nine months and that disconnect between husband and wife lingers on and on and on, that distance will lead to doubt. Doubt in the, their relationship, doubt into their faithfulness, doubt into the, to the covenant promise that they had made together. It's just going to happen. No matter how much in love they were before that deployment, distance will lead to doubt. When a promise is made far in advance, uh, the longer that promise goes on unfulfilled, distance leads to doubt. 
Like this is just part of our human nature, part of our fallen identity. <laughs> when Eve uh, moved away from God, and they walked, her and Adam walked with God every day in the garden, but that distance for her didn't take very long till she doubted the truth of what God had said, and she listened to the serpent. Israel, the, the story of Israel is God shows up, God proves himself, he fulfills his promises, and then uh, the next day, <laughs> Israel doubts it. The next weeks, they move away from him. The next months, they exchange God for idols that they made themselves. Distance leads to doubt. When Jesus arrived, there had been thousands of hundreds of years of prophecy promising he was going to come. Promising a savior and a Messiah, but hundreds of years, generations have gone by, and distance led to doubt. Even though Jesus proved himself through miraculous signs and wonders, people, eh, I don't know. Could this really be the one? And now for us, on a personal level, how many of us have gone through seasons of doubt? Where we would say, maybe we use the Christian phrase, our faith has grown cold. We can remember when we were younger or in a different season of life when our faith felt warm, felt hot, it felt vibrant, it felt real. But now in the moment we're in, not so much. Sometimes on a corporate level, whole churches can experience this. There's just an apathy in the church. There's just a going through the moment. Yeah, we'll, we'll, go, we'll be there three out of four Sundays and we'll go to the occasional extra thing. But there's not a vibrancy there's not a mission. There's not a, a, a focusing on the, the promise that Jesus is going to return someday. And so distance can lead to doubt. And when you pile that on, when you combine distance uh, onto the skepticism of the world, an unbelieving world, well, then people easily deconstruct and move away and forget God and go their own way. In what we just read, Peter specifically acknowledges this type of doubt and this battle that happens when we have our own doubts as we wait for Jesus' return. And then the skepticism of the world also comes in. It starts messing with the church. And Peter uses this term scoffers when he talks about these people. And we get a picture of the type of person um, that Peter's mentioning with Jesus back on the cross. Like when Jesus was on the cross after having performed these miracles, after having fulfilled these prophecies, Luke 23 records that the soldiers scoffed at Jesus. They made fun of Jesus. They offered him sour wine and they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Come on, prove it after all that he'd done. So Peter has in mind these same people in what we just read. In fact, these scoffers, there's a pretty good chance they're not even outside the church. They're in the church. They use the language of faith. They may even be Christian leaders, thought leaders, pastors. These are religious folks that have moved away from Jesus. They've doubted his promises. They, they doubt things like the resurrection, the virgin birth, the return of Christ. So Peter points out that in their mocking, they are ignoring the power of God who by just a word created everything. And then he challenges us as Christians to see the delay of God's return of this promise as a good thing. When he says in verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish 
but everyone to come to repentance. Now, we'll revisit this perspective in just, just a minute because it's very, very important. So after, though, addressing the scoffers, Peter asks a question of the followers of Jesus. If you're following along in, in the Bible, it's in verse 11. Essentially, what he says is, since ev- eventually everything we know will be undone, your bank accounts, your empire, the little kingdom that we've all created, eventually all of that's going to go away. But everything's ultimately going to be made new. In light of that truth, what kind of people should we be now? How should we then live? And really, this is the question that every generation of Christians has asked and should be asking. Throughout the different seasons of life that we walk, how am I to live now, God? I I was thinking about it earlier this year. A few months ago, my wife and I were talking, and when our son Jude was first born, I was an associate pastor making $24,000 a year. And I was thinking, like, how did we survive (laughs) financially? How did we make that? But we, in that season of life, we trusted God with the little we have. So each season that we're in, we always have to continue to ask this question, how should we now live? And as we live in this tension of knowing God keeps his promises, but not knowing when Jesus will return, Peter gives us four things to keep at the front of our minds. The the first thing he says, and you see it in verse 11 and 12, is that we as Christians now, in light of Jesus' return, are to live holy and godly lives. We're to understand that God's patience in not returning is actually a good thing. I'll explain that in a moment. And then we're to be on guard because God's patience in not returning is a challenge. We can acknowledge this tension, right? And it's a good thing he's not coming back, but it's also a challenge. And then the fourth thing he, can, he encourages us with at the very end of this letter is to keep growing. So as we think of these things, our feet need to be firmly planted on the reality that Jesus is going to come back. So with that in mind, let's look at these four challenges. And while we do, I want to encourage you, listen. Listen to how the Spirit may be calling you in this moment in your life to adjust your perspective. Don't think about 10 years ago when everything was great in your faith. Or or don't, don't, don't say, well, someday in the future. Think about right now. How is God calling you to adjust your perspective? So number one, he says, to live holy and godly lives. This is honestly kind of a Sunday school answer. (laughs) If if Jesus is returning and in his return, he's going to judge those who've responded to him by their profession of faith and their actions, not just their words, then of course we should be living holy and godly lives, right? Right? Right. Okay. (laughs) But, but what does it look like to live a, a holy and godly life? Am I living a holy and godly life? Does that mean I have to do this list of things? Like, How do we as Christians live holy and godly lives? And if you were with us at the beginning of this letter, Peter gives seven things that reflect the holiness of God in our lives. It's not a comprehensive list, but it's a good start. And it connects with the very character and nature of God. Things that we add to our profession of faith. 
So it's a beautiful thing what happened at the camp this last weekend with these students. But we want to continue to pray for them because that profession of faith they made now needs to put some feet to it, right? right. Like there's, a, there's now a new way to live and to walk. So this is what God calls us to do as Christians, is to walk out this goodness and this holiness that he's called us to. So Peter gives us some of these examples at the very beginning of this letter. But not only this, there's all sorts of passages in the Bible that give us examples of what godly behavior looks like. There's also lots of examples in the Bible that show us what it doesn't look like, how we're not to live. And this godly behavior contrasted with ungodly behavior is on display throughout the biblical story. Now, not long ago, some of these examples that we see in Scripture, these ways that we're called to live holy and in line with God's will, they were generally accepted in the culture. A lot of the moral fabric of our nation was based on biblical Values. Now, there's a lot of things that we did that weren't as well. We can acknowledge those. But a lot of the, the moral fabric of the American culture was based on the Bible. And they were generally, these things were generally accepted. But here's the thing. Culture changes. Things that were once taboo are now accepted by the culture. But God's standards never changed. So just because culture says, ah, we, we don't really believe what the Bible says anymore, doesn't mean God's changed his mind about that. And so the challenge, the charge, really, to live holy and godly lives should be a very basic Sunday school kind of answer, but it's easily forgotten when the culture shifts away from agreeing with it and begins to then challenge those same godly behaviors it once agreed with. In other words, it's easy for us to live like God has called us to live when everyone else is doing it. But when they're not, well, it's hard. We have one example. God's word has always reserved sexual intimacy between a man and a woman for marriage. In fact, for generations, American culture agreed with that. Even if you weren't a professing Christian, people would say, yeah, that's right. That's how it's supposed to be. But now that idea has not only been disregarded by the culture at large, but it's also been disregarded by a lot of folks that go to church on Sunday. As young men and young women have sex before marriage, they move in together, they begin to do the things that God's word says, these are good and beautiful things reserved for covenant relationship in marriage. And when you do those things outside of that relationship, they will be broken. They're sinful. So the culture at large used to agree with that. Now, do whatever you feel like doing. And we see the results in our society. So now if you reserve sexual intimacy until marriage, as God's word makes very clear you're to do, you are the rebel in the culture. You're the odd one out. So Peter leads with this rhetorical question, how are we to live in light of Christ's coming? And he answers it with a basic answer. If you know that Jesus will return, you are to live holy. That is distinct from the culture. Not removed from it. We're not talking about that. But not led by it. Not influenced by it even. At least to the degree 
that you follow it. So we are to be holy, set apart from the culture, and we are to be godly, that is, in line with God's design for life. This is why Peter opens up his letter with those attributes we're to add to our faith. So Peter says in verse 15, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, to to Jesus' return, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Now, here's where our our pendulum could swing, and we become judges of the culture, specifically judging those who aren't professing Christians. And when this happens, our sin nature might even pop up, and we might even feel ourselves getting upset at the ungodliness around us today and saying, Jesus, what's taken so long, just come back now so we can be done with this. And here's where the second point comes in. The fact that Jesus hasn't returned yet is evidence, not evidence, of his slowness, but of his patience. And his patience is evidence of his love for God's people, for all people. How many movies have you watched where there's this scene in the movie where people are are fleeing some sort of a disaster? I just saw a preview for a a, a new Roland Emmerich movie, and the concept is, what if the moon fell into the earth? You know, it's like, well, then I don't even know what the outcome of that movie is going to be. We're all dead, right? (laughs) I love Hollywood. So we've seen these movies, right? There's a natural disaster or some calamity happening and everybody's loading into a train car or an airplane or or some sort of avenue escape and they're waiting until the very last moment, the very last agonizing second so they can save as many people as they can. And this is absolutely reflective of the heart of God. When Jesus comes back, there are going to be people who've repented of their sin, who've turned to Jesus and they believed in him. And there's going to be people who've rejected him. And they're going to be doomed by their own sin. And so when Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is the heart of God for you and I. It's this grace that brought us to him. And it's this grace that that is going to be continued to offer, be offered up to an unbelieving world until the very last moment. Whether that's the last breath you take in your old age or the last breath you take as he returns. So as we see the evil and the ungodliness around us, we know it will be dealt with. And in the meantime, every minute that goes by is an opportunity to save one more to share the saving grace of Jesus, to share the, the true heart of God, which is his love for you and for me. And as we look at the third and fourth challenge from Peter, they're really uh, one continued thought, this challenge to be on guard and keep growing. Be on guard and keep growing. The, the first is a warning. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Now, the best pastors uh, preach to themselves every Sunday, and Peter is certainly doing that here. His warning is essentially, you can know the truth, you can declare the truth, and you can fall away from the truth. You can reject it. You can doubt it. 
This was the man who was the closest to Jesus in relationship, yet under pressure, not once, but not twice, but three times, he denied ever knowing him. Peter, the same one that's writing these words. So he's preaching to himself when he writes this letter. Now, the phrase carried away by the error of lawlessness, however, doesn't make us think of a, a sudden confrontation that makes us lose our faith. Like, oh, I had one, one conversation and, and that was it. No, this idea is it's a slow current that moves us away from the truth of God. And it's usually because we're not paying attention. I've shared this example before, but for a brief period of time in my younger years, I, I got into surfing. I grew up on the Northern California coast. It was very cold, and the ocean was very rough. But me and my friends got into it. And I remember learning about how currents worked. And we would be sitting out in the, the waves waiting for a, a set to catch, to, to, to surf back in. But the other thing that we learned when we were out there as we're waiting for these waves is there is a side current that moves us up and down the coast. And I remember after sitting out there for 20 minutes looking to shore for kind of the marker of where we came in, and I couldn't see it. And I looked almost a quarter mile up the beach, and there it was. I had no idea, because the coastline looked the same, that I had drifted that far away from where I started. And this is how it works. This is how, so often how the enemy works in us. He, he puts some thoughts in our minds. He exposes us to little bits of untruth for a long period of time through our education, through Netflix, through social media, through politics, little by little by little. And what happens is we become formed by those. The way that we see and think and interact with the world becomes formed by that. But it's not an all of a sudden frontal attack. It's a slow drifting away from the truth of God. And pretty soon, you wake up one day and you go, you know what? Why do I still go to church? I don't believe any of that stuff anymore. Why do I believe in Jesus? That can't be true. And people are surprised by it. Maybe you're even surprised by it. But it's, you've been slowly drifting that way for years. And so Peter's concerned about this. This is at the end of his life. There's, uh, most scholars think he died within probably a year of writing this letter, persecuted, martyred for his faith. So he's challenging the church to be on guard. Be aware of the inputs that you're receiving, of the false teaching that you're hearing in all of its forms. Be on guard and grow in the grace of of God. He says, be on guard, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And this is it. He's not saying be on guard, and that just means hold on until the storm passes. No, he says, be on guard and advance. Grow in your faith. The, the grace of God, the unearned favor of God is, is heaped on us and it, and it changes everything both now and in this moment and in the moments to come. Yeah. You know, I, I love the, the third verse of the classic hymn, uh, Amazing Grace. It says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we've already come. Yeah. To us, grace has brought us safe thus far. And it's grace that will lead us 
home. This famous song, many of you know, was written by John Newton, who was so changed by his encounter with Jesus that he could no longer make his money in what at that time was the very well-paid profession of a slave trader. His, His faith in Jesus flipped his world upside down. So at a time when the the buying and selling of humans was acceptable by the culture, this conversion caused him to align with the truth of God and against the culture. And the words of amazing grace were a personal confession of how astonishing it was (laughs) that the favor of God could ever save a wretch like him. By the amazing grace of Jesus, we today are called to live holy and godly lives. We are called to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We're called to grow in that same grace that's given to us and patiently wait for his promised return. These three short chapters in 2 Peter have had such important and timeless truths for our church today. And I'd encourage you uh, as an individual to take a few minutes this week and read through all three of them one more time um, to meditate on them, to think about the timeless truth for you and to ask the Lord to speak to you as you do that. And as we close out our time of worship this morning, we'll have the worship team come come back up. Um, I want to take a moment to reflect on the word of God that we just heard. Let's ask some questions together. The first question I want us to consider is, what is your heart tuned to? Like when, when you, as you live your life, as, as you think about your heart, it's your emotions, it's your will, it's your desires. What are, what are those things tuned to right now? The other question I want us to consider is, if you are in a place of doubt, is your doubt in God because of distance in relationship. So many times marriage relationships begin to suffer because there is a distance that happens, even though the proximity hasn't changed. There's less conversation. There's less intimacy. There's less prayer. There's less shared vision and values. And the same is true of our relationship with God. Oftentimes doubt comes in because we're making room for for other relationships, other inputs in our lives that are trying to take us away from God. And as a church, we want to ask, are we growing in his grace or are we slowly drifting with the culture? Now, sometimes you can be accused of drifting with the culture because you talk about things that are still a part of God's heart and are being talked about in the culture. So as we've talked about issues of racial justice in this last year as a church, the culture is talking about that too. And certainly God's word has a lot to say about that. So we don't want to be confused. But we want to be led by the truth of God ultimately in every issue that comes up, whether it's issues of racial justice, of sexuality, of politics. We want to make sure that God's word is what's informing our truth. And so as a church, as we think about these questions, we want to be led by the Holy Spirit of God. And so I just want to pray for us right now to that end. Father, we thank you that as we wait, you don't leave us alone. 
when you made that promise that you would return, you also made another promise. And the promise is of the Holy Spirit. Your spirit would come and reside with us. And it is this spirit that has sustained the church that has allowed it to advance despite untold persecution. It is this promise of the Holy Spirit that has allowed us as individuals to weather the personal tragedies and storms in our lives. It is this promise of the Holy Spirit that allows us to know your word, to live your word, to proclaim your word. So we thank you, Father, you haven't left us alone. But we are waiting. And we are crying, how long, O Lord, must we wait? And so, God, as we cry out those words as a church, would you guide us? Would you show us what it means to be holy and set apart, to love you well? Would you give us your kindness and your patience with others around us so that we might love people well? And would you give us a vision for what it means to be salt and light in the city so that we might love the city well? Thank you for your grace, favor that we didn't earn. And so it's never removed. May we continue in your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.